Today we're going to be starting off chapter 2. And so you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to be specifically looking at verses 1 through 8 today. So I'll give you just a second to get there. I knew that's where we're going to be, and I had one of my handy-dandy ribbons in my Bible ready to go, opened up. Everybody there? I don't want to leave anyone behind. All right, let's go ahead and read. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. There, uh, this is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands with, without anger or argument. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, that it has power, that is living and active, and it stands alone, and in no way needs me to make it more powerful or more effective. But as we have gathered to listen to your word and to meditate on it and to talk about it, I pray, Lord, that your spirit will reveal the depths of your truth to our hearts, and not so that we walk away uh, thinking about what we need to change in ourselves, but may we leave this place today praising you for how you are changing us by the power of your spirit through your word. Amen. So what's the big idea of that passage? As we read through it, what, what were some of the, the ideas, the themes that you think it would encapsulate this passage? Feel free to, to cheat and look at the title if you want to in your Bible there, the bold words right above the chapter. Instructions on prayer, that's what mine says too. What version of the Bible do you use, Jerry? Hold on, oh, me too. Good Bible, yeah. Instructions on prayer, any of you other versions out there have a different uh, title? Worship, wow, that's a cool one. I didn't see that one coming. It's very worshipful though. Can't, can't deny that at all. Any others? Prayer, prayer for all people, yeah, and that's the direction we're going, prayer, prayer for all people, but I think there's a very important element in this passage, if we just say prayer, prayer for all people, or even worship, um, I think we're leaving out a very important part. I sat in my room way too long over the past week or so preparing this sermon, I don't have any windows, and so if I make you do bonker things or say bonker things, that's why. So uh, I sat too long in my little closed-up room. I apparently needed to move because as I was thinking through this, I was like, man, this is just begging for hand motions to get everybody to remember the big theme. And so I'm going to have you guys do hand motions. I'm a youth pastor, work with kids a lot. That's what we do. So we're going to do that here today to help you remember what the main idea, the big idea of this passage is. And so as I was thinking through it uh, and trying to encapsulate what this is all about, I want us to think about this is... We want to say the prayers that we pray. And so when we do this, you don't have to do it yet. I'm giving you a warning. The prayers that we pray. And a lot of times in Scripture, when you see people praying, they're usually very, actually, I don't think at all. You never really see people sitting and folding their hands and closing their eyes in prayer. 
It talks a lot about prayer prostrate, prayer kneeling, and prayer like with hands raised high to heaven. Those are like the postures of prayer. And so that's why we're adopting this posture for when we talk about prayer. prayer. So the prayers that we pray and the lives that we live, and that's outstretched open palms because we are serving and we are giving to others. The prayers that we pray and the lives that we live must reflect so you notice that the reflection from the prayers that we pray, thank you, uh, Dave, I see you up there already doing it. Man, you're a quick learner. The, the prayers that we live, uh, a prayer that we pray, the lives that we live must reflect God's heart, must reflect God's heart to save all peoples. Got it? All right, let's try it. All right, the prayers that we pray, all right, I'm calling out the whole like first five rows over here. My kids, Heisel's are, I don't see the high. come on guys, this is not an optional, unless you've got like a broken arm or something, or just something serious going on, yeah, all right, the prayers that we pray, and the lives that we live, must reflect God's desire to save all peoples, that's powerful, if we can grasp that, if we can grasp hold of that, I, I, it's like I have no doubt that God will do amazing things in our church, in our community. If we can grapple with that truth, this is not just about prayer. This is not just about praying for everyone. This is about that God wants to unleash the power of heaven because his desire is to save all people. That's my question as we get started is, is that our church's desire? Through our prayers to see God saving all people. How are we at that? How are we doing? I mean, really, introspect a little bit. How are we doing as Calvary Baptist Church in reflecting in our prayers and in our lives that God's desire is to save all people? How are we doing? They're like, oh, we're doing pretty good. You know, think about it. We support missions, missionaries. We've had a huge budget, budget for missionaries, and that's good. I don't want to take away from that. But for now, let's just t- take away from our, our, say, our missionaries aren't there. We're not supporting them. How are we doing as Calvary Baptist Church? How are we doing as individuals, reflecting in our prayers and in our lives that God's desire is to save all people? How are we doing? One of the harsh realities for us is not just Calvary, but as in the Western church, is that a majority, a vast majority of church growth comes from people coming from other churches. We talk about this a whole lot. We've got this revolving door. We've got, I mean, imagine this. Imagine a family of four comes into our church. You know, we're like, wow, God, praise God, we got four new people. That's amazing. You know, and so we're reporting on our little report card to God. We've got four new people, God. Aren't you happy with us? But imagine those four same people eventually leave Calvary, and I don't know what the average number of churches that people attend through the course of their lives. I got to think that it's at least three or four. That might be on the conservative side for some. But if those same three or four people go to the next church, and that church is like, God, we got four new people. And, uh, and then the next church says, God, we got four new people. And then the next church says, God, we got four new people. 
So all of a sudden, if you're just looking at it from statistics, you know, we're like, wow, God, we got 16 new people. All these churches are reporting these new, you know, these new, uh, you know, this growth, this great church growth that has happened in America. And we look at it and say, no, that's ridiculous. That's the same four people we're all claiming on our report cards with God. Does that seem like a problem? Yes is the correct answer to that. Yes, that's a, that's a problem. It's an urgent problem that we have in the North American churches that a majority of our church growth comes from people who are already Christians coming from other churches. Should we rejoice? Yeah, it's great. It's always great having a bigger family. I mean, look at my family. It's always great. More the merrier. But on our report card with God, and thank God he doesn't have report cards for us. That would probably ruin some of our motivation. It's kind of like law-based all of a sudden. Thank God he doesn't do that with us. But at the same time, I think this is urgent for us as a church to say, are we serious about allowing God's desire that all people be saved be reflected in our prayers and our lives so that all people can come to know him because that is his heart. It is urgent. And I think that's why in this passage in, in uh, 1 Timothy 2, he starts off, Paul starts off to Timothy, he says, first of all, the, first of all then, I urge it's urgent for us, and it was, it's urgent for Timothy and Paul back in this time period. He says, I, I urge you, and it's ironic because he says, first of all, I urge. This is the second time he's actually urged uh, Timothy in this passage. He says, I urge you. And what he's saying is, in light of everything in the previous chapter, for you to fulfill those goals and this vision that I'm creating for you, I urge you to do this practical step. This is how it is applied to your life right away. There's no way you're going to accomplish these things in chapter 1 if you don't start here. I urge you, this is of first importance. And if you've hopefully been listening to Pastor Tom in the last month and a half or so, you, some of these sermon titles might start bringing back some of the things that he's talked about. He's talked about silence, false teachers. He talks about your testimony is a powerful thing. The serious charge in shipwrecked Christians. Is that bringing back some memories all of a sudden? Practically speaking, Paul is talking to Timothy and he's telling them, in order to maintain doctrinal purity, in order to see how the gospel has power to change lives, in order to fight the good fight, hold, uh, hold to the faith and a good conscience, and in order to avoid a shipwrecked life, you have to pray. You have to. This is urgent. This is not optional. You cannot do chapter one if you don't start with prayer. Can't do it. It's failed from the very beginning. I urge you to pray. It's the greatest starting point for us. It's the easiest, that we can, easiest thing that we can do that unleashes the greatest amount of power from the God who breathes stars into being. It's super easy that we can do it. We don't have to have any arms. You don't have to have any legs. You don't have to have eyes. You don't even have to have a mouth to be able to pray. I told you I was cooped up in my office too much this week. I decided to write a little poem. It gets worse. <laughs> I was inspired in this poem by Dr. Seuss. And just so you know, I'd spent more time on my sermon prep than I did on my poetry, although you might not be able to tell the difference between the two. And it says this, it's like, you can pray anytime, anywhere, in a shower with power, in a van with Stan, it gets worse, 
on a floor before you snore. Though we all wish to never have to pray from inside the belly of a big. You know it. You saw it coming. I told you I'm not a poet. Ask Eunice. That is not my stronghold, my strong point in life. But I was just thinking about it. It's like it really shows how easy prayer is. It's, it's so easy. But why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? We can pray anytime, anywhere. But why don't we do it? I remember growing up with stories of George Mueller. I don't know how many of you know about George Mueller. He was, I think he was a German guy. He moved to England. He started an orphanage back before it was cool to actually run an orphanage. Now it's kind of like, kind of the hip way to, to help people. And like, yeah, you know, and everybody's on board. This was the day and age. People didn't really like orphans. You know, they were cast off. They were the, you know, just the... Uh, off to the side. You know, society was kind of like ignoring them. And although I think that argument can be made that we still do that somewhat today. But George Mueller, he started an orphanage and he just brought kids in. And he didn't have a whole lot of people. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of churches supporting them. You know, like we got to hear about Idrahaji in this camp where we're, you know, we have the, the Peters going there and many others. And, you know, churches pouring their support to help just love on the kids. That wasn't the way, like, people looked at kids as much back in this day and age. Again, they were the cast-off. And George Mueller started this orphanage. And he just ran it on, I mean, really complete faith. He didn't know where the money was coming from. He didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And there's all kinds of stories where George Mueller, he said uh, something to effect of, I never want, he would, he would never tell people about his needs. And that doesn't mean you can't tell people about your needs. But he says, I'm going to go to God on my knees and pray. So that when those prayers are answered, I know it's no one but God and him alone. There was this one morning where he's sitting down with all these kids and they're having breakfast. And it's kind of hard to have breakfast because they didn't have any milk. And he gets down on his knees. He's not going out begging for milk and asking churches for milk and all this other stuff. He's on his knees and he's talking to God. And he's like, God, where's the milk? I don't know exactly how he prayed it, but it's a great spot to start. And you know what? Right after he prayed, a milk truck broke down outside of the orphanage there, and the the milk was going to spoil, and they knocked onto the door to the orphanage and says, hey, can you all use some milk? Answered prayer. So easy to do. And it's like, why don't we do it? Why don't we pray? And I think the reason why is because we have devalued prayer in our own lives. We have personally, individually, I think every one of us, one way or another, has devalued prayer. One of the ways I think we've devalued prayer is, and I think we've all been there, is when, when you're like pouring out your heart to somebody, you're just struggling, you're having a rough time, and somebody comes up to you, and, you know, and you're telling them about it, and, and, uh, and they're like, yeah, you know, man, sorry, that's, that really stinks. I'm going to pray for you. And there's part of your mind, you're just kind of like, are they praying for me? Are they just saying that because they're they really hurt for me? They have a heart for me, or, or are they saying that because, you know, they don't really want to take the time to actually help me out? You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been there where you kind of have it just in your back of your mind? You're like, are they just? Do they really not want to help me out? Do they not want to take the time that it would take to actually help me out with my problems? Do they? Does the most time that they want to spend with me is the time that it takes to connect? God and me in the same sentence in their head? Is that the extent of it? And I think the reason we think that about other people is when we question other people when they say, I'm going to pray for you, is because we are guilty of doing that ourselves. 
We know it when other people have come to us and share needs with us. It's so easy for us, especially if we don't know what to do, or just kind of, you know, I'll pray for you, and we can just kind of leave it there. And that devalues prayer. And don't get me wrong, it is good to, to tell people you're going to pray for them. It is good to do prayer with other people. But this is the point. We must acknowledge that the value of prayer is diminished in our lives and in other lives when we use it as an excuse, as an excuse to not actually do all that God may want us to do to help people. We can't mistake this powerful starting point of prayer as the final conclusion of the way that God wants us to help other people in their lives. It's the first step. It is the most powerful step. But if there is a first step, there is also a second step. If there is a second step, there is a third step that we must take with people. Do not use prayer as an excuse to stop walking through people's problems and trials and temptations with them. Do not use prayer in that way. It diminishes prayer. It kills it in our life, and it kills it in other people's lives. Another reason I think we devalue prayer, the way we, we devalue it, is because it's the easiest thing to do. It is so easy to do, and we associate easy and cheap. There's no way I'm going to pay somebody a lot of money if he comes over to fix something that's easy in my house for me to do. That's how we determine value. And so when prayer is so easy for us and anybody can do it, we assume that it is indeed cheap. But I want to challenge you out of revelations in the throne room of God where nothing comes cheap. We're going to read Revelations 5, 6 through 9 real quick. Try not to get distracted by the horns and the eyes and the spirits. Really easy to do that. But look at the, the precious position of our prayers before the throne of God. Revelation 5, 6-9 says this, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding in a harp, and this is your prayers, each holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Does that sound cheap to you? No. I know in my home that if anything shows up on the table and it's not in white Corel dishes, it's pretty awesome. I'm looking forward to that dinner. Here we've got the, this, these golden bowls full of incense before the throne of God. That does not sound cheap at all to me, and we can guarantee it's not cheap because of the next line right here. How much did it cost to get those prayers in those golden bowls before the throne of God? What did it cost? And it tells us right afterwards. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That is the cost of your prayers coming before the one and holy God. This passage is echoed in 1 Timothy 2 in verses 5 and 6. We're skipping down a little bit, and we'll come back. But it says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. There is one man who enables your prayers to come before God. And that is the person Christ Jesus. 
And it says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's what it costs for you to pray. Do not mistake easy with cheap when God's son died so that your prayers can be heard by an almighty God. We can pray because Jesus died and there is no greater cost which makes prayer priceless. Let's treat prayer that way. And so verse 1, it says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. These are four different terms for prayer that are mentioned here. And pretty much Paul is saying all sorts of prayer. Petitions are humble requests for needs. Prayers is the general term used for prayers, which is why it's interpreted as prayer. Intercessions is the same term used for when the Holy Spirit and Christ uh, intercede on our behalf before God. We can intercede on others' behalf. And then thanksgivings is expressing a heart of thankfulness. And we could spend a lot of time just unpacking these, uh, these types of prayer. And Paul is covering the general spectrum of prayer, but he's not covering it in a general way. He is very focused and very specific in how he's using these four terms for prayer. In verse 1, it helps us to see that focus. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. We do really well in the, the whole, you know, that part where it's, he didn't just say, let, uh, don't just pray different ways. We do really well in praying different ways. We pray all these intercessions. We pray, you know, thanksgiving. We pray these different ways really well. But do we pray all these different ways really well when it comes to all people? That's where I think we are failing as a church. We pray for the people that we love. We pray for the people that we kind of want to love and might be strained a little bit. But do we pray for all people? That's what Paul's challenging on. This is the urgent nature in the early church and the urgent nature for us today of prayer. Is our, how are we doing praying for those, those other people, the other people? In order to see how serious Paul is about this, using praying all prayers for all people, uh, we have to continue looking down. What is the scope? And it says, uh, we shouldn't this shouldn't be lost on us. And uh, let me see, I got to go back to 1 Timothy here. What is the scope? And he says in verse 2, for kings and all those who are in authority. Did you get that? For kings and all those in authority. In order for us to see the scope of what Paul is talking about, the nature of the people that he's asking us to pray for, uh, we've got to look. We've got to look at this like a cookie. In the middle, we've got the double-stuffed goodness of God-loving prayer, all the different kinds of prayer. I love those new mega-stuffed Oreos, you know, those awesome ones. Imagine that, all the kind of prayers, the delicious goodness on the inside, but it's sandwiched by two nasty cookies, <laughs> awful cookies. It's sandwiched, I mean, spinach cookies. I don't know what kind of cookies are crazy out there and nasty, but that's what I'm imagining. There's two nasty cookies on the outside of this delicious prayer. Paul had just got done talking about who? Two blasphemers, Alexander and Hymenaeus. Two guys that caused Paul and I'm sure Timothy and the church in Ephesus a lot of consternation. He just got talk, done talking about these guys. They were so bad that Paul said, I got to hand them over to Satan. They sound like they were real winners in the church to you. No, these were bad guys. 
And so that was one cookie on one side, and then right after he's talking about praying for all people, he comes to the other side of the cookie, and he says, pray for kings and authorities. And I know that not all kings and authorities are evil, but you got to step back and look and say, who is Paul talking about? Who's in his mind when he's talking about kings and authorities? And it's obvious that one is that Nero was the emperor of Rome, and many of you already know about Nero. He was notorious for killing and torturing Christians lighting up his garden with them, burning them, putting them in the Colosseum and, and torturing them. It was, it was horrible. Nero was also eventually responsible for Paul, the Apostle Paul, and Peter's deaths. Does this sound like a real winner to you? No. Not only that, but, you know, the Jewish authorities that Paul was actually had a relationship with. He knew intimately the Jews' authority and who they were. What did the Jewish authorities just get done, do, just got done doing? Crucifying Christ. And so we got to look and see that the spectrum that Paul is talking about isn't just like, like from Preston to Pastor Tom. Sorry, Preston, I needed somebody who wouldn't get offended by using that. And he's the intern. I'm not done with you yet either. <laughs> the spectrum that God is talking about isn't from Preston to Pastor Tom. You know, like, oh, pray for everybody from, from good to good you know, or varying levels of goodness. And I'll let you figure out which one's on which side there. No, he's saying, I want you to pray for all people. And the spectrum I'm talking about is from pretty awful bad to pretty awful bad. Do you think you can find some people like that in your life? Yes. Are you praying for like five minutes? It's because probably you're, you're praying for all the good people and there's not a whole lot of great people out there, so your, your options are pretty low. But if we start praying, how did God pray all through, or Jesus pray all through the night? How did people pray for, you know, longer than, you know, we can ever like hardly stay awake? You know, I remember Jesus said to his disciples when he was praying in the garden, he was like, you can't even stay awake an hour. It makes me wonder, how did he pray for an hour? What's he praying for? What's he praying for? He's, I think Jesus was praying for all mankind. He actually knew him by name. Maybe he could have, actually was. I don't know. But how are we doing looking at the spectrum of our prayer? Are we limited by good to good? Or are, we limited by, or are we praying from the lost to the lost? What is the spectrum of our prayer that we are praying for? That is the scope. And that's why Jesus told his, you know, his followers, he's like, pray for your enemies. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. You're praying for your enemies, whether they're in the church or they're outside the church. You're praying for them. You're praying for the lost. He didn't just say pray. He said, pray, 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 pray. I got to add an extra one there. He said, pray, 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 pray for all people. When a holy, holy, holy God says, pray, 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 what should we do? When we are asking for God, show us guidance and directions for the future. You know, where are we going as a church? I don't think God will ever show us where we need to go in the future if we are not doing the very obvious, urgent first step here of praying for the lost. Why, why, why? Don't worry, I'm not going to keep repeating everything three and four times. Why is it not just prayer, but all prayers? Not just all prayers, but all prayers for all people. Why is that so important? Verses 2 and 3 tells us, it says that we, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it pleases, is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And all of you parents are all like, thank you, Lord, for my new life verse. I am praying for peace and quiet. 
That is the goal and object of my prayers, peace and quiet. That's all I want. Let's have a revival, bring all of our children up, and let's pray for them here and now. That's how we live our lives with prayer, isn't it? What do we spend most of our time praying for? And it's not all bad. Paul tells us right here, pray for peace and quiet and to live a godly life. I pray for others just so I can get some peace and quiet, so I can be left alone, lead a godly life, and pretty much mind my own business. And I think Satan so much wants to stop us in reading this passage right here. He wants to put a barrier between us and the next verse. If I can stop him right here, I'm going to have these Christians stuck in their church. And that's all they're, the only place they're ever going to be is there. If I can stop them here. Oh, John, aren't you hungry? Yeah, I want a snack right at this verse. John, aren't you getting sleepy? Oh, yeah, I need a nap. Ooh, look, a text. Oh, somebody Facebook messaged me. Oh, that's what Satan's doing to us right here because he does not want us to read this next passage. Because if we stop here, the prayer is about me and my comfort. But if we continue just one more verse, we quickly realize that any comfort and peace that we are blessed with is meant to provide opportunity for us to be part of something greater. Just go one more verse, and I'm hungry for this, guys. I desire this. I'm dying. You're dying. And if I die, I don't want to die in peace and comfort. You know, have you thought about this? I know it's kind of like one of those weird thoughts to think about how you want to die, but if we all got to die anyway, I mean, wouldn't it be cool to like die running into a burning building and saving somebody? You know, wouldn't it be cool to like push somebody out of an oncoming car and be like, you know, it's like, I'm going to die anyway, so might as well make my life mean something. What's the point of dying in peace and comfort if it's meaningless? If I die, I want to die for something bigger than me. And this is, this, there's nothing bigger than this. And I know it's big because God sent his son Jesus to die for it. He says this in verse 4, what's so big that's worth dying for? It's like God's desire that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That's big. That's huge. That's what I have decided to give my life for. I don't want to give my life, don't take this wrong, for a church. And all this church is, is that social gathering. I don't want to give my life for a church that is not concerned with the lost. I don't want to give my life for a church that is more concerned with our quiet and comfort and peace. I want a church, I want to be a part of a body and a community of people who have a vision for the lost. From the, from the lost to the lost. That's what God wants us to be praying for. This is the question, is do your prayers for peace and quiet, it's not against God's rules to pray for peace and quiet, but do, do your prayers for peace and quiet reflect God's desire to save all people? Or is your heart stopping at verse 2? Judging by what you pray for most, what do you care for most? Now let's work backwards through chapter 1, and we're going to be really late, and I hope it's okay because we still have communion. I think this is a good thing to spend a little extra time on this, but I do apologize, but not really. 
this is crucial. If we don't want to be shipwrecked in our faith, if we want to fight the good fight, keep the faith and have a pure conscience, if we want to see the power of God unleashed in people's lives and see them change, we must pray. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, especially the lost. And if we don't pray, it doesn't matter how well you know the intricacies of doctrine. It doesn't matter how much you know predispensation and covenant theology. It doesn't matter how much you know end times. You could, in fact, know the time, location, and the place of Jesus' second return and the name of the horse that he's going to be riding all at the same time. And it is worthless and it is meaningless for you. All those are meaningless unless we understand that their core purpose is to reveal the height and the depth and the love, the breadth of God's love, and that his heart is to save all people. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. You can speak in the tongues of angels, which would be pretty awesome. You could have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and knowledge, and even have faith. But if you don't have love, I am nothing. It's meaningless. It doesn't count for anything. Is that what you want your life to amount to? No? Then you need to pray, 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 pray. All prayers for all people. We can summarize Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 5. And he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from pure, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Where do we learn how to love? What is the first step to knowing and aiming for love? And this is what I've confused really my whole life, guys, is I thought the first step to learning how to love is going out and doing love. Actually, you know, we hear this our whole life. Love is a verb. You go and do it. You know, and when necessary, you use words. I've heard this my whole life. But that's not the starting place for love. It's not. It's not actions. It's prayer. This is, what, this is why, you know, Paul's so passionate about it. It's like we're starting in all the wrong places. If we're not starting with prayer, we're never going to love the way that God has called us to love. One of the best places to learn how to love people is by talking to a loving God about people in prayer. I am convinced that God wants us to talk about other people because we do it all the time. It's usually gossip. And we're talking about people to other people who can't do anything. I think God has designed us to pray. And we just have to go to the, we just have to go to the right place to talk about people before the throne of God. This is the great mystery is why does God want us to pray for others? Can't he do it on his own? Absolutely. Why does he want us to pray for others? I don't pretend to know the, the full mind of God and the full answer to this question, but I can't help but think this one reason might be a big part of it, is that it produces in us, it produces something in us, it changes something in us, it realigns our hearts with God's and it helps us to love from a pure heart. I want to just use an example, the story of Paul's conversion real quick. And it's really, I think the story of Paul's conversion really encapsulates everything that's going on in this passage. If you want to read it on your own, it's from Acts 9. We're going to look at verses 10 through 17. I'm going to read through it real quick. But I want you to look at two things in particular as we read through this. How did God change Ananias' heart? And how did God change Paul, whose name in this passage was Saul? How did he change his heart? What was he doing? How did he do all of this stuff? And so remember that Paul, whose name at this point was Saul, he was on the road to Damascus to go and to persecute the Christians there. God, uh, you know, Jesus spoke to him and, uh, and blinded him and spoke to him and said, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You remember this story? That's where we're picking up. 
is this story. And, and uh, Saul goes into Damascus, and he's waiting for God to work in a mighty way. We pick up in verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him, Avisius, Ananias. And he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, and, uh, and this is a vision to Ananias. I think in this vision, he was actually praying. I really do, because in just a second, we're going to see where Paul was praying, and God came to him in a vision. But God, Ananias was communing with God. He was talking to God, conversation between the two of them. And so God spoke to Ananias. He says, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and the house of Judas and look for a man named Tarsus, named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. This is what Ananias said, and I think this is what each one of us say. This is kind of the 1 Timothy 2.2 excuse that we use in our life all the time. Ananias said this to God, but God, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So he's kind of like, God, he's kind of rocking my world and my peace and my, you know, my, you know, peace and comfort. This dude you're asking me to go and talk to is rocking my peace and comfort. That's where his heart was. It wasn't really for Saul. It was for something else. It's for the people of God. It was for himself, self-preservation, self-comfort, all these things. But this is the powerful thing when you talk to God in prayer, is he reveals his heart and his love and his plan for people. He says this, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he is to suffer for my name's sake. God spoke to Ananias and revealed his heart was to save Saul. And look what happened. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on, on Saul, this is what this is what Ananias said. This is powerful, guys. He goes up to him. He said, so before he was like, God, this man is a, a blasphemer, just like Alexander and Hymenaeus, and he is a persecutor of Christians, just like Nero. He's all these things. He, he's all the spectrum wrapped up into one guy. That's what he was saying that Paul or Saul was before. But his first words that he comes to, when he comes to Saul finally, he says, brother, his life, his heart was just transformed because he was spending time with God in prayer. This is no longer some, some lost man that was just persecuted. This is now brother. God transformed Ananias' heart in prayer. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why did God speak to Ananias in prayer? Because he wanted to make sure he knew that his job was to help people regain their sight and be filled with the Spirit. God was doing it, working in Ananias' heart and through prayer. And because of that, Ananias brought the gospel, brought, you know, he, he didn't do anything for Saul's salvation, but he brought salvation to Saul. And it is now this Saul who is talking to Timothy in these passages and is Saul that is saying, this is why it's urgent for you guys. This is why it's urgent that you pray because I was, I was literally, I was spiritually blinded and I was literally blinded. And prayer changed the heart of God's people and it changed my heart. And your heart, Timothy, 
no matter how doctrinally sound you are, no matter how, you know, how much you desire to see people saved, no matter how much you, know, you, you want to do all these great things, it doesn't matter unless you pray. That's the only way you're actually going to realize all these things, these amazing things in, in chapter 1, is if you pray. That's why in, uh, you know, Paul's heart was changed. This is the great thing about Paul. His heart was changed, and it says that he, he was a, a despiser, he, he was a blasphemer, and he was a persecutor. And this is one of my favorite verses in this passage, in verse 7. He says, he says to Timothy, he has to say, no, really, guys, this is craziness, because you know what my life was before when I was all these things? He says, I'm not lying to you. I am telling you the truth. No one should believe this at all, but my heart's been changed. I was a persecutor of Christians, and I hated the Gentiles because I was a, a Pharisaical Jew. And you know what? He says, but now... God has called me to bring salvation and to teach the Gentiles. That's life transformation. And that, if God can do it for Paul, if God can do it for Paul, he can do it for me. If he can do it for me, he can do it for anyone. And the question is, if he can do it for anyone, why aren't we praying for everyone? It begs the question, why aren't we praying for everyone? Because we're hung up on verse 2 okay to pray for peace and comfort but don't use our prayers don't use peace and comfort as an excuse to stop praying or pray little prayers we need to pray same way Ananias, Ananias did God has sent me to bring a spirit to you so that the eyes your eyes can be opened so the big idea is all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people changes our hearts and reflects God's desire to save all people so you remember the prayers that we pray, the lives that we live, must reflect God's heart to save all people.